Love in Paradise is Dr. Joel Hunter's sermon series, and the first message is entitled, Not Good Alone. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter has chosen the second chapter of Genesis, verses 15 through 18, as a scripture text, and it reads as follows. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now, let's join in for praise and worship, followed by Dr. Joel Hunter's message, Not Good Alone. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that we can follow you, knowing that you are truly in charge of everything anyway, and that you have promised us that you will not leave us or forsake us. Lord, we are comforted by those words, but we pray that we will also be challenged by the fact that you are God and we are not, and we desperately need to listen to you and learn of you. So Lord, as we embark on this new year, this new series of teaching, the new possibilities it brings for each of us in our relationships with each other and with you, Lord, teach us, we pray. Help us to be changed by the truth that is in your word, we ask in your own name. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin this new series this morning, um, we want to uh, just, we really do want to challenge you. This, uh, up until about May, Joel will be teaching us uh, on the subject of relationships. And we thought it might be kind of fun as we begin this series. Um, you know how the world loves to take pot shots at the church and spoof the church. We thought it might be fun to turn the tables uh, through this series and uh, take a pot shot, uh, take a look at uh, something the world holds very dear, and that would be soap operas. Um, We've uh, created our own little soap opera here, and uh, you're going to see this unfold week to week. And we call this the days, D-A-Z-E, of our lives. Like smog clouding the horizon, like sand through the egg timer, like that annoying thing Flashing 12 o'clock on your VCR. So flash the days of our lives. Merry Christmas, Eric. Just wanted to let you know how proud I am of you and all your accomplishments this past year. And here's hoping that 1994 will bring you even more success and happiness. Love, Dad. (laughs) My dad, what a guy. 
He's been like a father to me. <laughs> yes, success and happiness. You know, success and happiness are two words that sum me up quite well. I received two promotions from work this year. Yes, you heard me right, I said two. And I love my job. I work for a physical therapy rehabilitation equipment company. I evaluate our equipment and make sure that it's state-of-the-art. We like to help our clients recover from their injuries as quickly as possible. That makes me feel good. Because nothing beats the blessing of watching the gratitude on someone's face as they walk out our door on two good legs. This, oh, this is herbal tea. I intend to uh, keep my excellent health. <sighs> Where was I? Oh, yes, 1993. Success and happiness. My promotions at work, of which there were two. Blessings. And the love of the Lord. Oh, Lord, you have really been faithful this year. You've really been there for me. My walk with you is close and intimate, and you've shown me that you are all I really need. You've kept me from wrong relationships and temptations of the flesh. Lord, I may have come close to making a few mistakes now and again, but now I know that I do not need a woman in my life. Because you've made me an overcomer. I'm whole and complete. And one is a whole number. <laughs> Lord, I promise you that no one will come between you and me. You can take that to the bank. Nineteen ninety-three. Success and happiness and the love of the Lord. So why do I feel so empty inside? Will Eric find what he's missing? Will he pick up the trash he threw on the floor? Will Susan's baby turn out to be a space alien Elvis lookalike? And who is Susan anyway? For the answer to these and other life-altering questions, be with us next week for another timely episode as we experience the days of our lives. We hope you don't mind a little fun, um, especially as, after such a wonderful worship set, you know, where you're, you're just at the throne, and then you come back to the ridiculous. Um, but that's exactly how Christianity is, you know, you do that every time you walk out, hopefully, of the uh, church. Um, we will, uh, throughout this, kind of throw you into a a contradistinction, two very different places so that you can see the difference between them. Now, let me prove that point by coming off of this soap opera and tell you that the point that it is trying to deliver, the biblical point that it's trying to deliver, 
is one of the most profound, if not the deepest and most mysterious theological principle in all of history. If you will turn in Genesis to the first chapter, let me lead up to this first message of the year. And let me tell you, we're not pulling any punches. We're not waiting until you have gotten over your holiday grog. Um, we know that you are uh, uh, all in football hangover right now. You are wondering, can I, you know, is this Sunday? Okay, am I going to operate in the world tomorrow? We know that. But we decided to start right out and challenge you to a life of depth and understanding. And we decided that it would be best if we pulled no punches, don't try to be uh, tremendously easy with our concepts at the very beginning of this year. Because this entire year is going to be spent on relationships. Remember, we are in our fourth year now of journeying towards spiritual maturity. The first year, we said essentially... Let's break out of the ordinary, ordinary realm of, of spirituality. If we're going to do this thing, let's do it. Let's not come to church as a habit. Let's not just try to learn the same things over and over again. Let's put forth the effort and the perseverance that it, that it takes to become spiritually mature. Instead of having the same experience ten years again and again, let's have ten years worth of growth. The second year, we stated this. Now, not only does God want us to break out of the ordinary, ordinary realm of spirituality, He wants us to know that He made the world with a purpose. That if He made the world with a purpose, He made us with a purpose. We are not some accident. This world does not have an accidental end. It all goes toward a predisposed, God-summarized ending. And so, therefore, our job is to learn our place in it. The third year... We said, look, if we get serious about this thing, we've got to get used to adversity. Because when you get serious about learning your purpose in life and beginning to operate in that purpose of life, then it does two things. First, it arouses the adversary. All of a sudden, you've become a spiritual threat. And so you're going to be going through some things you haven't gone through before. And number two, it's not easy to live in a culture whose values and tendencies are diametrically opposed to the absolutes of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, we must learn how to operate in the midst of adversity and grow through adversity. That was all last year's preaching. And right at the end, we said this. You know what God's going to do? He's going to build up a community, a society within that society that has the identity of Jesus Christ. And we are going to live together in that community so that we can operate as salt and light in that world, but still maintain our radically different identity. And to do that, God is going to create loving relationships. He's going to do that not only because that is the end that is provided for us, Christ and His bride, the community of the church, but also from the very beginning, from the Alpha, that has been the, that has been the genesis, literally, of our being. Because our being is in accordance with the nature of God. And the nature of God is plural as well as singular, which implies relatedness, which implies love. Now, 
Turn with me to the first chapter of Genesis, to the 26th verse. And let me read this for you. This is the foundation, this is the theological foundation for the entire year. And we will develop this as we go along. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule. Do you notice how many plurals there are there? Now, there are people who say, well, God is simply talking to the heavenly host here. And so he's in a great company and he's letting them in on what he is about to do. But the fact is that if you take this as it says, the heavenly host would be in on the creation and the heavenly host has no creative power. Only God can create. And so therefore, when he says, let us make, he's talking to the different aspects of himself. The, the Hebrew is Elohim, and Elohim is a plural uh, word. It is a, it, is a, uh, it is a word that has relatedness within it. Now, look at what he makes. It says in God, in verse 27, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So from the very beginning, from the summary of the creation of man, we'll get into the details of this in a minute, but from the summary of the creation of man, we are made in the image of God. Now, think with me. Don't, don't lose me here. If God is both singular and plural at once, then man whose job is to reflect his image, needs to be able to be both singular and plural at once. Being singular is not an adequate representation of who God is. In the very early days of the development of Christianity, there was an 80-year controversy about the Trinity about the nature of God, about the doctrine of God, the identity of God. And the summary of that 80-year battle was this, that God is not a monism who makes um, inadequate representations of himself, from whom proceeds lesser beings like he is. No, God is both singular and plural at once. Now, that was a mystery too deep for anyone to fully understand. It still is. But it doesn't make it any less true. Now, what does that have to do with the way we live? Turn to the second chapter of Genesis and let us read this morning's text. Beginning with verse 15. Then the Lord took the man... And put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now you must remember when you read this that the purpose of God is for man to subdue the earth. That has already been stated in chapter 1. Now what he's doing is putting an individual man in literal position to literally subdue the earth by his hands. He put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. 
And the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, what have we got so far? We've got a man who, if he is task-oriented, if he is accomplishment-oriented, is truly in paradise. Now, let me pause for a moment right here and say this. I think there literally are, by nature, a couple of types of people. One type of person is very relationally oriented. They love just to spend time with people. They don't have to accomplish much. They, relationships are what they do, what they are, what they love. There are other people, though, and I am in this category, who are wired for accomplishment. We've got to see progress. We accomplish tasks. We do things, you know? And so... If Adam were in this second category with us, he would be in a wonderful position. Why? Because he has the chance to develop his intellect. First of all, he could develop his intellect by, by pursuing the knowledge of the garden. He had an intellect because God told him what he could and couldn't do, and therefore he could comprehend it intellectually. He has the chance here to pursue his work which is very well defined, which ultimately fulfills his purpose in life without any messiness from other people, he has the chance to serve God and to be good. His only job is to not touch that one tree. So he can mount up accomplishment after accomplishment, promotion after promotion. And not only that, He's got a relationship with God. He's got a personal relationship with God and the opportunity to be approved by God for His performance. What could be better? But yet, read verse 18 with me. When God surveyed it, it says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The only time in all creation where God says it isn't good. The only time. And not only does he say it is not good, he says it in the strongest possible way. The Hebrew here is not entab, which would mean, you know, this is, this is neat. This is really good. But there's kind of something missing here. A little something missing. I mean, this stands well on its own. But there's, there's something that we could cook up yet. No. It's lotab, which means that something is painfully deficient. And if it does not appear, there will be a horrible vacuum in this picture. When God says it is not good for man to be alone, He says it in the strongest possible way. Now, here is where I want us to go just today. There is a depth to life that is beyond the mechanics and the functioning of life that God wants us to have. There is a depth beyond the mechanical ability that we have 
without which there will be a painful deficiency in our lives, no matter how good we are at what we do, listen to this, including relationships. Now, before I really get started on this, let me say this initial disclaimer, that God does not want us to be um, bad at what we do. There's no virtue in being sloppy or idiotic. There's no special virtue in not being able to function well. There's a certain level of functioning in life that prevents us from a certain embarrassment. And we should all try to reach that level of functioning, whether it be in our work or in our our relationships or whatever. Because frankly, it's uncomfortable to live when you don't function very well. The older I get, the more I realize (laughs) my, my, my abilities are decreasing radically. I'm making mistakes. I'm not functioning as well as I did 10 years ago. It's, it's showing up. I'm making stupid mistakes. And it's frustrating to me. Um, about a week ago, I went out in the kitchen to make coffee. Made the coffee, went in the room, sat down, started reading. And Becky comes in and said, Hunter, what? Well, she said, you didn't put the coffee pot under that little drip place. She said, there's coffee all over the kitchen. I said, oh, I am so sorry. I said, gosh, I'm, I'm getting old, man. This is fr- I'm, I'm getting kind of scatterbrained. I'm sorry. No, no, I just wanted you to know it's okay. But when you make coffee, put the pot under the little drip, <laughs> under the little drip place. Three days later, I wanted another pot of coffee. Went out, went in the room. Five minutes later, Beck comes in. Hunter, what? Honey, you did it again. (laughs) Did what again? You didn't put the pot under the little drip place. There's coffee all over the place. I said, Beck, I'm scared. (laughs) I said, I am. I'm scared. I'm not functioning well. This isn't good. And Becky, with her rescue nature, comes in with this. Now see if you buy this. Comes in... Oh, no, she said, you function just as fine as you ever did. You know your only problem, she says, is that you're so smart and you think such lofty thoughts that you can't be expected to remember to put the pot under the... Ah, yeah. We often hear the phrase, he's so smart he can't make himself a cup of coffee, don't we? Now, I'm not buying that, and, you know, that simply comes under love covers a multitude of sins, you know. I know that I'm slipping functionally. I know that. I know that. And I'm I'm not trying to say that functioning is not important. It is. But when it comes to relationships, when it comes to the depth of life, let's not even get to the relationships yet. When it comes to the depth of life, functioning isn't all there is. You know why? Because we can be quite narcissistic in our functioning. It can be all about us. Eric, it was all about Eric. His lack of perceived need for anybody else in his life was his fascination with his own accomplishment and his father's reinforcement of that accomplishment. You know... Even when we do try to form relationships, 
we try to take them by storm. Even when we're forming relationships with God, with the kingdom of God, we try to take it by storm. Matthew 11 talks about the prophets who have tried to take the kingdom by violence. See? He says, John and all the prophets before them, there were men who tried to take the kingdom by violence. But he also says, you know what? The least in the kingdom of God is better off than these. Why? Because you can't take relationships or the kingdom by force. Let me let you in on something else embarrassing that happened to me this week. I went to driver's school this week. I don't know how many of you have had that wonderful experience where you have this moving violation. Again, because you're not thinking. And you, they say, well, you can have points on your license or you can go to driver's school. I said, well, I'll try that driver's school thing. So I, went, I go to the driver's school. And driver's school is where they show you for four hours videos and ask you what you would do in this situation. So there's this one video where the, the camera's on top of the car and you're going down the thing and a big old Sears truck pulls right in front of you. And this is how it goes. The, the officer says, now, would you slam on your brakes or would you pump your brakes lightly and pull off to the right, try to, try to get your car on the berm or would you g- swerve off to the left? What would you do? And all of us are trying to give answers, you know. And he kind of got a smirk on his face and somebody says, what's the smirk about? He said, oh, I'm thinking of an attorney that was in here last week who, given all of the options, said he wouldn't do any of them. And we said, well, what would you do? He said, I'd step on the gas. (laughs) And the officer said, why would you do that? He said, man, I'd run run into that sucker and sue his socks off because I want my name up where Roebuck used to go. (laughs) But a lot of us operate like that, you know? We kind of want to put our name up next to somebody else's by how well we can do technically in a relationship, how we can manipulate that relationship. But you know what? Life doesn't work like that. Because life at its maximum is more than functioning. And we know that. Deep down inside, we know there are things we can't manipulate that we have to be able to just receive from God. That's the message of grace. That's the posture of grace. And it doesn't matter how good we get at business or every other aspect of life, we will still be missing significantly if we can't delve into the depths of what we can receive from God. One of the things we did over the, over the holidays was to rent the Muppet version of A Christmas Carol. Now, I don't know how, how many of you have seen that, but it is absolutely, I love to watch the Muppets. I become a little kid when I watch the Muppets. It's just so much fun. And so here they are, this little Muppet thing, and they're Scrooge, you know. One of the famous scenes in The Christmas Carol, if you've seen this thing, is when Bob Cratchit comes in early in the, in the uh, process into the cold, dark office of Ebenezer Scrooge. And it's the day before Christmas. And Bob Cratchit, cheerful as usual, says, Merry Christmas, Uncle. And Scrooge says, Christmas, bah, humbug. What right have you to be cheerful, Cratchit? You're poor enough. To which Cratchit responds, What right have you got to be grumpy? You're rich enough. You understand the discrepancy? That it doesn't matter how good you are at something, how well you do something, how well you function mechanically in this world, there can be an awful painful absence in your life that makes you grumpy 
No matter how many resources you have. You know, the world is getting to know that more and more as they go along. How little mechanical devices can do to really make life meaningful and deep. In the last two issues of the Harvard Business Review, they've had an ongoing um, uh, review of rewards, so to speak. The mounting evidence in business is this, that the reward systems, the monetary reward systems used by industry are not only doing an ineffective job at increasing performance, but they are, the evidence seems to say, actually undercutting the very character that they're trying to develop within the workers. Why? Well, from the evidence that they can glean, the bonuses and the prizes and so on and so forth do have some effect. But the effect that they have is very temporary and very localized. And what actually happens, even though there is that temporary um, um, motivation for different behavior, is that there is an undercutting of the long-term value and work ethic that they're trying to develop in the hearts of people. So what they're doing by this mechanical device is actually evaporating the very thing they're trying to build. Why? Because mechanics don't work at the depths of life. Now, let me cut to the chase here. I'm very concerned about the church. And I'm very concerned secondarily about the world. And the reason that I'm concerned is that because both in the world and in the world of Christianity, we are more and more relying upon the language of mechanics and the language of functioning rather than the language of depth and sacredness. Now, I realize that you can get a more immediate change from that mechanical aspect. But I want to tell you that we are entering a danger zone here. I am all for therapy. I think counseling is good for people. But I want to tell you, and the Christian counselors already know this, that the language of dysfunction only covers the very surface of what may be wrong with a marriage relationship or a friendship or a parent relationship. It is not bad to say we need to improve our communication skills with one another. We need to make our communication clear. But I hope if you improve your communication skills, you do not begin to think that you have solved the main problem in your marriage because it's deeper than that. The problem will not be solved until you can love each other with your heart. We have this kind of overview of this society that says, you know, the problem is that... uh, um, um, The government doesn't work right. Yeah, if the government could work better, then our society would be better. And so there are basically three camps of people. One camp of person says, you know what, government needs to become bigger in order to provide for the poor so that they can have equal standing with the rest of us. 
Now, there's something in me that responds positively to that. There's another camp that says government needs to become smaller so that it can get out of the way of the people who do function well, and then we'd all be better off. And there's something in me that responds positively to that also. And there's this other camp that's, you know, coming up on the horizon. There's a little guy with a funny voice that says, tell you what the problem is, give government back to people. I'm not sure what that means. The government is the government. It is a separate entity, and it always will be. I'm not sure philosophically how that's possible. But he's getting a good hearing. The problem is that our lives will not radically or drastically improve, no matter what you do with the government. Because it's not up to the government. It's not on that mechanical, functional surface level that the depth and the joy of life come to us. That what we need really happens. I'm afraid for this society. I'm afraid for the church. I'm afraid for the definition that is going around about life. It's a definition that defines us according to function. We, we have this word now, quality of life. What is quality of life? Well, the definition is basically... How many functions can you do? The more functions you do, the better quality of life you have. And if you can't do the functions, then you wouldn't have what we would call life at all. That frightens me. Because you know what? You're more than your functions. You are a creation of God that cannot be touched by an extraneous mechanical definition. It frightens me when people say, let's define what a human being is. And let's define their destiny by how they are composed chemically. I believe they will say that behavior is biologically predetermined by the structure of their DNA. Others will say, oh, no, no, no. People are are profoundly predetermined by the conditioned responses, by the family patterns, by the sociological patterns uh, under which they live. They are molded by their environment and so on and so forth. Other people will say, no, 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 it's all brain chemistry. It's not any of that. That is not the definition of who you are. The definition of who you are is much deeper than that. And what God would say to us is that there is nothing mechanically on the surface level of this world, nothing functionally that's good enough to leave you be able to function your best in the world, even if you have a relationship with God. No, there's something else that God wants to build into your life. Now, let's cut to the, to the last point. The last point is this. The depth that God wants to build in your life will come in terms of the people that he has brought into your presence. Now here's the danger. If we think in terms of functioning, most of the time, especially those of us who are task-oriented, want to go around the people, go over the people, and somehow avoid the people so we can get our job done. God would say, it is not good. There is a radical deficiency in your life if you think like that. 
No, there's something more that God wants to show us. Rene Magritte said this, For everything we see, everything we see hides something we want to see. And that's what God would want to show us. And that's what I hope we'll begin to look for this year. That all of the surface stuff we already know about, we will pay attention, but we will think, what's behind that? What's deeper than that? Because God wants to cultivate in me something that's deeper than the functions of my life and how well I do things. Carl Jung once said, every psychological problem is ultimately a religious problem. I like that. I like even better Thomas More's new book, The Cure of Souls. The subtitle is The Cultivation of Depth and Sacredness in Everyday Life. I believe that's where God wants us to go. Now, how do you do that? Ah, there's the problem. You don't. But I'll show you a way this morning, a prophecy out of this book that will help you open yourself for God to do it in you. The prophecy is this. Genesis 2 says to you that you are not to avoid the pain that will come in the relationships that God brings to you, in the people that God brings to you. And we're going to talk about the pain that it was to be married even in paradise in the coming weeks. But the bottom line is this. That it is through that pain, it is through that inadequacy, that is through having no answers, that God builds depth into our lives. It's nothing we can manage, but He does it. Let me give you an illustration, then I'll quit. I went to see a movie uh, this week, Becky and I did, uh, with some friends, and the movie was called Shadowlands. Shadowlands, um, it premiered this week, but I think it's going to start, I think, January, I don't know, in the coming weeks. Look for it. It's a movie about C.S. Lewis, and those of you who are well-read in Christianity will recognize that name. C.S. Lewis is one of the most brilliant minds ever to explain and plumb the depths of Christianity. And in this pictorial biography, you see a man who has thought through things theologically very completely, very deeply. You hear him say, you know what? He says, God is not for our happiness. I'm not sure, he says, that God wants to develop happiness in us. I am sure God wants to develop in us the capability to love. And therefore, he says, one of the main propositions in that capability is the availability to go through pain, even when you have no answer, because you have been with someone else who is going through pain. And that's what it's caused you. You hear him say this to audiences. You hear him with the analogy of the, of the chisel and, and God's hammering against the stone of your life. And that's really what narcissism is. It's hardness. It's not opening yourself to anybody else. 
But you hear him say, talking about God hammering, chiseling out what is Christ's image in you and how that chisel hurts, but that's how God calls attention to himself and his adequacy. And there's all these wonderful talks and you think, what a brilliant man. But the turn in the movie comes when he falls deeply in love with a woman who is in the advanced stages of cancer. And he stays with this woman whom he marries, knowing she's going to die. He stays with her horribly, wonderfully, excruciatingly, until she dies. At the end of the movie, he says, I've had two chances in my life to love. One I chose not to, the other one I chose to. Think on this. That God will bring you people who you are to be with when you have no answers, when there are no cures. And what he's trying to do is to build into your life the character of who he was when he came down and emptied himself for us and took on the form of a servant and suffered death, even death on a cross. It doesn't come in any other way because life is more than mechanical. And God's goal for us is much deeper than functioning. Would you pray with me? Oh God, it would be so much more fun to have a message with three points and a practical admonition and so that we could just go out and live it in a functional way. But God, you want more than that. You want your image in us. And so therefore... To some degree, not only are we to be made like you are, but we are to live as you did. Teach us this year, persistently, to make ourselves available to the people to whom you bring to us. Available in ways that we have not been previously. And teach us through that why it was not good that we were alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Reverend Moulton. Let's stand for the benediction. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul describes the model Christian life, and he closes with this prayer. I want you to hear the words of this, because it sums up, I think, what Joel has been talking about today. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. He's talking about taking us deep in our walk with him. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he closes with this promise. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Go with that confidence that he will bring to completion what he has begun in you. Amen.